Welcome to the Jungets Games Podcast. In today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a live question and answer vlog I did on July 8th, 2020. All right, let's jump into it. So the first question is coming in from Ray Di Donato, and they say uh, that uh, they consume a lot of board game content on YouTube, but they are becoming increasingly frustrated at uh, their favorite channels covering more promoted content rather than content of the creator's choice. They ask, uh, do I experience any frustration in having to create content for promos rather than coverage of games that you enjoy? And... Uh, or that particularly ingest, interest you more. Uh, they say, I got into your channel through your coverage of games you choose, or at least he felt like I was in control of them. Well, this is an in interesting question for sure. And uh, realistically, um, I don't really have much frustration with this because it's my job. Um, <laughs> and a lot of uh, the higher quality YouTube uh, content creators do this for a living, uh, or at least as part of their living. And um, unfortunately, when you just cover the things that you want to cover, that usually means the only revenue you are getting is through ad revenue. And while you can get a decent amount of that if you are getting good views, that's still not going to be enough to really affect a lot of things for most content creators. So if somebody is, you know, invested in this enough to make it something they do for more time than they can do another job, then they have to make money. Uh, you know, we have to pay rent and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a necessity. It, it kind of, it makes sense that the big YouTube channels, the people who invest their entire time into it have to do that. Uh, now this is a big reason why things like Kickstarter, uh, funding, uh, campaigns happen for creators and Patreon. Uh, Patreon's getting a lot more popular, uh, as time goes on, which is really cool to see. I've been using it for like five years now, a very long time, but Rado jumped on recently. And I know that no pun included did. And that is how specifically no pun included is making this work because it's their full-time job, but they never take any sponsorships. So they are definitely a YouTube content creator group that only covers games that they want to. So there are people out there who can uh, make this work because of the amount of funding that come in. But for m most people, that's not really the case. And considering uh, me personally, I make a lot of objective content. Um, I don't really mind being paid for that. And I do get enough requests that I try to only say yes to games that I think are cool anyway. So it's a win-win situation, hopefully, you know, getting income so that this can continue to be a job while also being a game that I think is neat. So, um, I think it's inevitable that this is going to be happening as channels get more and more popular, because as you get more popular and your quality goes up, it takes more time to actually make all this and time does cost money, unfortunately. So uh, I hope that is a reasonable answer. I think the, the, the short version of that is you know, support the people that you really like. If it's through Patreon or Kickstarter or even just PayPal donations, um, it's always very appreciated. And when enough people do that, it lets people, you know, cover the stuff they want to do specifically instead of going after sponsorships. All right. Uh, John Wheeler asks, did you get a copy of Tekenu? Are you still scheduled uh, for doing that at the end of the month? Well, I have some good news for you, John Wheeler, because uh, there it is. It's literally on the table at this moment. I had to kind of uh, knock the obelisk over so that it wouldn't uh, be in the way of some recording I did earlier. So yes, I did get a copy of Tekenu. <laughs> uh, I am planning on recording the tutorial for that one um, after I do lunch. I'm going to do this and then do lunch and then do that. So um, that is happening. And I hope to release that one near the end of next week. Uh, next up, uh, Risha Lershu asks, how do you organize your games? Um, the way I organize my games is most of them are on a five by five um, Calyx, or actually it's an exhibit, uh, which was the uh, version of Calyx before, but that's just me being silly. Um, I 
tend to organize it so that the games I want to play most are higher on the shelves. Um, so if I haven't played a game in a while and I want to get it played, I'll swap it with something so that it's higher, so it's easier to see. And then on the left-hand side of my shelf, I do the lighter games, and the right side of my shelf, I do the heavier games. So depending on what the group is feeling, I can kind of find the right column, and then I can look in that column and be like, oh, I've been meaning to play this game, and I know that because it's up near the top. So that's, that's how I do it. Uh, all right, so Sam Farley asks, do you ever play games with a regular deck of cards, whether older games like Cribbage or hobby games like Skull with some adaptations. Um, these days, not really, but I've definitely played a decent number of those kind of games in the past. I've played a lot of Cribbage. I spent five weeks in New Zealand about nine years ago, and I had a deck of cards, and I had about 100 dice in my bag, <laughs> and that was it. So we played a lot of Liar's Dice with the dice and then the deck of cards. Oh, and I had a Cribbage board. And so I played a decent amount of Cribbage, probably at least 10 to 15 games on that trip. I'm not sure if I played it since then. It's probably been about nine years since I played Cribbage. I, I like it. There's just so many other games to play, so um, they don't really get played that often. Um, I guess the most recent uh, standard deck of cards game I've played is poker, uh, Texas Hold'em. Um, it's been a little bit, but um, it happens every now and then playing uh, uh, Texas Hold'em with my friends. I, I really enjoy that, as long as it's low stakes, because I'm not much of a gambler. Um, I don't really have any adaptations for other games with, like you said, Skull. I actually own a copy of Skull, so if I play that, I usually just do that. Oh, actually, I take it back. Uh, at Gamma, just three months ago, uh, we purchased a standard deck of cards and then uh, purchased a, a couple of jokers so that we could play Tichu with that deck because you need four jokers. So I do technically have a standard deck of cards that can be played otherwise because I wrote Dragon and Phoenix and whatnot with a Sharpie onto the jokers. So, uh, yeah. Next up, we have Andrea McPherson. Uh, and you ask, has a game playthrough result ever frustrated you enough that you decided to go back and refilm it, i.e. not for the rules correction, but perhaps just a bad in-game decision? Um, this has happened definitely once. I'm not sure if I've ever done it more than that. Uh, the one time that sticks out in my mind is when I recorded the playthrough for, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, Teo Khan. Now, I didn't finish the playthrough. I got... I was about two or three hours into the recording, so I was like a third of the way through, and it was just not showing the game very well. And it wasn't like, oh, this game is bad, I'm doing a bad job of showing it. It just, one player was was doing really well based off of the decisions I was making. I feel like I was making bad decisions, and I decided to reset. I actually changed the technologies around a little bit so that I could, it would just be a little bit better. Like, it, it wasn't just that one player was running away with it. It just seemed like it wasn't showing the mechanics off very well. Um, I kept... Like the optimal move kept being not something that was very good at explaining more rules. So yeah, I, I did do that once, but I definitely try not to do that as much as possible because, you know, that's a lot of time. Uh, all right, so next up is... Uh, <laughs> a Bar Above asks, what's the story behind that swanky backdrop? Uh, a Bar Above is my sister and my brother-in-law. Uh, they have a YouTube channel also. Uh, they started theirs first, uh, where they do uh, craft cocktails and that kind of stuff. Um, so, <laughs> hi, Julia. Um, so this backdrop, um, the, the short story for this is um, these little wooden discs here. Um, are uh, uh, garbage from an event that I worked on in September of last year. I was about to throw them away, but I thought they looked cool. So I molded over for a long time and I ended up drilling a pattern into a piece of plywood. And then, um, you know, the rest is history. There's a little bit longer of a story to it that I go into in detail in an update vlog one or two months ago, but I think it's pretty cool. It's definitely a lot more interesting than this gray curtain that I've been living with for like the last four or so years, which is better than a white wall, but either way. You know, trying to make things better as time goes on. All right, next question. There we go. John Wheeler. Are you keeping Tekenu early thoughts? Um, 
Yes, I'm not planning on getting rid of it right now. Um, I've actually played it uh, already. Uh, Rainer, who works for Board and Dice, offered to teach me the game on, I think it was Tabletopia. And we did that like three weeks ago. Uh, so he taught me the game. And so I was able to get through all the questions and whatnot that I normally have. And it was just a two-player game and I enjoyed it. Um, it definitely has some pretty cool dice drafting going on and a lot of neat little decisions. I'm curious to see how this playthrough goes because that will be a three-player game versus the two-player game. Um, I'm not 100% sure if it's going to be like a game for me. It might have a couple more analysis paralysis inducing parts than is best for my personal uh, experience, but I won't really know until I play it again in the future. I'm definitely looking forward to playing this with more people. Maybe um, once it's released on Tabletopia as well as in the wild, I'll be able to play this with other people. I, I definitely am interested in playing this with other people more. And again, I'm interested to see how this uh, playthrough goes. W. Davey says, how did you get into reviewing board games? Uh, the short answer for that is I, uh, my, my other job is doing events and it has a strange schedule. So I oftentimes would be off on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday all day long. And I would get really, really bored because all of my friends had regular day jobs where they worked Monday through Friday, you know, eight till five. So as time went on, I got less and I had less and less things to do. I used to binge watch uh, StarCraft tournaments, StarCraft II tournaments. Um, but um, one day I was just so bored. And um, I, actually, uh, Rado had just started a Kickstarter campaign for his like second or third season. And he had mentioned that he started because he just picked up his phone, turned it on, and then recorded a video one day. And the rest was history. And I was sitting there. And I was so bored. And I was like, I have a phone. I have no nothing to do today. So I just turned my phone on and recorded that um what was it? A review of Tuluva. I just did it on the fly. I just, just did it because I had nothing better to do that day. Um, I came up with John Gets Games, the name, in about 10 seconds because I already had a YouTube channel called John Gets Board, like B-O-R-E-D, uh, where I would put things like time lapses of board games and paragliding and kiteboarding and skydiving and that kind of stuff. Um, things I used to do in my 20s. Um, so I just said John Gets Board turns into John Gets Games, and I just went with it. So it's kind of funny that like this tiny decision for like a name uh, of the channel has stuck with me for so long and it's now my you know, full-time job at the moment. And uh, and yeah, I just kept doing it and kept doing it and it was just a good way to, to take up time. And then obviously at some point it began to ask for time effectively. The Jongest Games uh, wanted more time for my day than I would standard give it. So I had to modify things for that. So yeah, that's that's the medium length uh, uh, story for that. Uh, all right, next up, Rachel Lershu asks, do you often watch other board game related YouTube channels? Do you get any inspiration from other creators? Um, yes, uh, I think the answer to that is yes. I, I, I watch less as time goes on, if I'm being honest. Um, these days, most of my YouTube content uh, uh, watching is for Hearthstone related content. I really enjoy watching Hearthstone tournaments and that kind of stuff, which is a video game version of a card game type thing. Um, I always watch everything that No Pun Included puts out, um, but that's not too surprising considering their videos are excellent and Efka and Elaine are good friends of mine. Uh, same thing uh, with Actual Law because John Perkis is a friend of mine. So a big part of that is because I like them as people and so I like seeing them. I like having it feel like they're talking to me because <laughs> I like talking to them. Um, as far as um, other channels are concerned, I, I do watch Slicker Drips, which is Tom Heath doing a bunch of playthroughs. I also watch Rado a lot because I think Rado does a really good job of showing you what it's like to play a game. Um, he might make more mistakes than I do, but it takes him a lot less time to make those uh, videos and it still gives you the idea. So if um, either Slicker Drips or Rado puts out a video for a game I have not heard of or I'm curious about, I will usually watch those. Beyond that, that's pretty much it. Uh, because honestly, I don't spend that much time watching YouTube each day. And and again, my priority is always just to watch Hearthstone. It's just like, 
I don't know, I, I wake up in the morning and make breakfast and I watch Hearthstone for about 25 minutes and then I go to work. And then at lunch, I sometimes watch Hearthstone for 25 minutes or 20 minutes. So it's just like the thing I fall back on because it's just easy it's content I like. And uh, yeah, board gaming content, I guess, is a little bit secondary for me, interestingly enough, on YouTube. Next up, uh, me here says, Are you, uh, have you played Air, Land, Air, and Sea? I have been highly enjoying that as of late. Uh, yes, uh, you have very interesting timing here. Um, before I started this q and I actually woke up, watched my Hearthstone, and then jumped in to record an impressions vlog where I discussed Air, Land, and Sea, as well as three other games. Uh, it was um, the Masters of Renaissance, the Grand Chunk Journey, and another one that is slipping my brain at this moment. Um, but anyway, I did talk about Airland and Sea. I played it once. I liked it a lot. The impressions vlog for that one should be coming out next week or so. Uh, I, I am looking forward to playing that one more. It's super cool. All right. Joe Chang asks, uh, thought about a co-host to bounce off with? Um, yeah, I mean, in the past, this has occurred to me, but the logistics of something like that make it something that I've never really entertained. I am able to set my own schedule right now since I do everything so I can plan everything out. And as soon as you bring even one other person into play, it makes things more complicated. Um, Efka and I, uh, Efka from No Pun Included, uh, we used to have a podcast. Um, we would get together, we'd talk about games. It was called The Last Place Podcast. And it was fun, but we only made about, gosh, how many episodes did we do? I don't even remember. It was like 15 or something like that. Because even the logistics of trying to hang out with somebody I genuinely really like hanging out with to then record something that is I genuinely like doing, which is talking about board games with one of my friends, um, that just kind of uh, proved to be a hurdle. So it's something that I haven't really invested much time into because of that, because it's just easier, I guess, to be in control. And um, honestly, I'm not sure how much that would affect things, and I'm not really sure what that person would do. Um, you know, if I'm making playthroughs and tutorials, I can't exactly invite somebody into the house and play the game with me and then if they're doing that, well, they're doing that all day long, so they have to be paid, and the money barely makes sense for me right now, and so it's just something that hasn't made sense. Uh, Blake asks, uh, Tawantan Suyu, also coming out along with Tekkenu, do you have any plans to make a playthrough for Tawantan Suyu? Yes, yeah, I, I am going to do that. At this point, um, Board and Dice have told me that they want me to make a video for every game they put out, which is like the best thing that you can hear when it comes to like being a business person, especially considering they're wonderful to work with. They're super responsive um, and just genuinely really great people. So yeah, I am going to be doing a video for Tawantan Suyu. I think that one's releasing in October. So I will likely do a video around then or maybe slightly before. I'm not sure the exact timing for that one yet, but it is very likely to happen. Uh, all right, Ross asks, what's your favorite Tiny Epic game? Uh, well, um, if you are not familiar, Tiny Epic games are a series that come out from Gamelin Games. They've made like, I don't know, 12 or 15 of them now, a lot. And they all come in the same size box, which is really quite small, and they hypothetically have a big gaming experience inside. I have played many of them, but I think easily my favorite is uh, Tiny Epic Galaxies. Um, the, each game is very different. The only thing that keeps them together is the size of the box realistically, but Tiny Epic Galaxies had some really great dice manipulation and kind of engine building stuff going on that I quite enjoyed. Um, I liked Tiny Epic Quest for the couple plays that I played it, but ultimately it didn't end up grabbing me that much. I only played Tiny Epic Kingdoms once. It did not get me that much. Um, many of the Tiny Epic games I've actually only played in playthrough form on this table, uh, where I haven't actually played with anybody else, like Tiny Epic Zombies, Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, Tiny Epic Pirates. Um, but of all of those, even from the experience of just doing those playthroughs and tutorials, I feel like Tiny Epic Galaxies still shines as, as my favorite. I, I really enjoyed that one. 
next up, uh, Mike Bloom with the Super Chat. Once again, thank you so much. Uh, you ask, are there any fictional IPs, like novels, movies, etc., that you would love to see turned into a board game? Um, yeah, probably. I guess uh, thinking about some of the IPs that I've played, I mean, I know that there is an Expanse board game already. Uh, it's, I believe, a three-player game, maybe it plays to four, that's uh, supposedly kind of like Twilight Struggle with the various factions. Um, I haven't played that game because I did not like Twilight Struggle that much, and I don't like troops on the map type stuff that much, even though I know it's more of a counterinsurgence type of thing going on, but I would love to see more Expanse-themed games, maybe more my style of Expanse-themed games, because I think The Expanse is an exceptional book series, and I think it's an exceptional um, a show. I, I love them both. Um, there's only one book left, and I've read, uh, you know, the first eight. I'm actively looking forward to reading the next one. Um, the other, my, my other big uh, series that I've loved book-wise is called the uh, the book uh, the Malazan Book of the Fallen series, which is a 10-book massive uh, epic fantasy series of game, uh, books. Every book is like a thousand pages long. They're just huge. Um, I, I read through all of that. Uh, in fact, some of the characters in my Gloomhaven video that I filmed years ago were named after those. Um, I really like that uh, series, even though it's kind of hard to read because it's so long and so expansive and so deep. But I think it would be pretty cool to play a Malazan uh, game. If a Malazan game came out, even if it was like, I don't know, Malazan LCR or something like that, uh, I would I would play it <laughs> because that would be so cool. But I don't think there's enough traction for something like that. Uh, next up, Ray Shilershu, which I think that's how I pronounce your name. I apologize if I've been butchering it every time. Uh, Ray Shilershu asks, do you have, uh, do you ever have any plans to do live plays with an audience or chat? Um, not really, uh, at this point, uh, playthroughs take long enough as it is. I don't know. It's possible. I guess it's not something I, I'm particularly focusing on right now. Um, I do have thoughts about potentially getting an adapter for my camera so that I can do live plays with my actual camera that's across the table from me that would look a lot better than my crappy webcam. And hypothetically, I guess there's a world where I could strap the live feed out of that while it's shining down on the table to then play a game along live. Um, you never say never, but right now it's not something that I'm really uh, keeping in mind. So um, who knows? Uh, yeah, I, I might be um, doing some changes in the future and maybe that's something that I experiment with at some point, uh, but I kind of doubt it at this point. Uh, Alan asks, uh, are there any games where you appreciate their design mechanics but did not find the game fun or enjoyable? Um, I am sure that's the case, but I'm going to have a hard time coming up with an example on the fly. Uh, I definitely prefer the mechanics in games. Like mechanics is the first thing I care about in games. And then it's things like theme and whatnot. Um, I mean, <laughs> interestingly enough, I guess uh, two of the games I talked about, at least maybe two or three of the games I talked about in the impressions vlog coming out next week, kind of fall into that category. So this is a bit of a spoiler. Um, I was not super blown away. Oh, Pan Am. That was the other game. I was not blown away blown away by the overall gaming experience for Pan Am, Masters of Renaissance, and Grand Chunk Journey. So it was kind of a, a downer of an impressions vlog, if I'm being uh, honest. But there are mechanics in each one of those games that I thought were super cool. In Masters of Renaissance, it has this awesome tactile marble resource gathering mechanism that's super cool, but the game kind of did not work out for me for reasons that I'll talk about next week. Uh, Pan Am has this awesome thing where you're trying to influence a map with tokens, but then you want to be gobbled up by a massive conglomerate of Pan Am because when they eat you, they pay you, and then you can use that money to buy their stock in order to win the game. And then the Grand Chunk Journey just has such an awesome smattering of mechanics with time tracks and multi-use cards and deck building and pick up and deliver, but 
was not a huge fan of how it all came together. And I'll talk about that in great detail uh, next week when that one comes out. All right. Andrea asks, are there any game mechanics you feel have gone stale but could be saved with some some form of innovation? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, just thinking about some of the standard game mechanics out there, uh, worker placement rarely does much for me because it's very oftentimes pretty samey. Um, I've been pretty excited by spatial worker placement games that I've played recently, in particular uh, games kind of like Little Town, where when you place a worker down, where they go in like a grid dictates what they do and that grid can change over time. So I think there are definitely ways to do more interesting things with worker placement. And there are games that don't even innovate worker placement that much, but are great, like Underwater Cities. Um, I think that uh, there are a lot of hand drafting games out there and I'm kind of curious to see perhaps some innovation in that space, but I don't really have any ideas necessarily. Uh, I, I will say there has been an idea that's been knocking around my brain for years that I thought would be cool, which might actually be happening. Uh, and that would be a uh, worker placement style game with deck building where um, there is like a central deck in the middle of the table that everybody communally builds. And then every turn or every round or something, you draw cards from the top of that deck and those will dictate worker placement spots. And on top of that, I was thinking it'd be cool if there was incentivization so that when you go into a spot, that card then goes away. But if nobody goes there, you draw another card and stack it on top. So now if somebody goes there, you get to do all the cards there. So if, so, you know, eventually that stack will get big enough to somebody will take that spot. And then everybody might be putting in special cards into that communal stack that are better for them than other people. I thought that would be cool. That, that that idea has been knocking around my brain for a while. I know that there's a game coming out from Czech Games Edition called, I believe, Ruins of Arnak um, that supposedly has worker placement with deck building mixed in, but I don't know if it's communal or not. So um, that's that's a little thing that's been knocking around my brain, but I don't really do game design anymore. So I, <laughs> I haven't really done any more with that. All right. Uh, John asks... Uh, sorry for so many tech and new questions. No worries, John. No worries. Uh, you said, what is the weight? Is it really lighter than Teotihuacan? Um, I mean, I've only played it once, but I think it's definitely rules lighter than Teotihuacan. Uh, Teotihuacan had a lot of different modules and different things like, you know, let's teach this one type of the board and then let's teach this next one. And I guess that's kind of the case for Tekenu. It does have six main actions, but um, four out of those six actions are very easy to teach, super streamlined. And then two of them are slightly more complicated, but um, my initial feeling is, yeah, I think it is probably lighter. I mean, you don't have the extra complication of the spatial action selection with the rondelle that you're doing and the upgrading of workers and all that. Instead, this is much more just standard action selection with, um, not standard, but um, dice drafting action selection. Um, so yeah, I, I can't really commit to saying it's lighter than Teotihuacan. I don't think it's drastically lighter than Teotihuacan. Um, if anything, maybe like 20 to 10% different. But again, I've only played it the one time, so it's, it's hard to uh, be super sure about that. Uh, all right. Dumidu uh, says, hey, John, is there a game that you're most looking forward to this year? Um, yeah, I think. Let's see here. There definitely are some games I'm interested in. The one that first popped into my head is one called, um, I think it's called, um, I'm actually going to Google this because I'm going to butcher it. Let's see here. Uh, there we go. It's called Praga Kaput Regni. <laughs> That's the reason I wanted to look that up. Um, that one is the newest uh, design by Vladimir Suchi, and um, I loved Underwater Cities, which was just an exceptional game. So this looks to be a heavyweight game, and, you know, generally I 
tend to be more interested in midway games, I suppose, but um, there's just so much going on in this game. There's like um, individual double rondelles on player boards. There's like a, a, a circle thing in the middle that you can manipulate. There's massive cardboard buildings that you construct and you put stuff on top of it. Just looks like there's so much going on. And considering Vladimir Suchi has made some really cool Euros in the past, I think that one is probably my number one most interested game at the moment. All right. John Wheeler says, if you, if I recall correctly, you love Concordia. Can you go more in depth why you love it? I bought one, but didn't fall in love with it. Only played it at two and three. Maybe that's why. I'm just curious. Um, okay. Yes, I do love Concordia. I think it's one of the best games out there. Um, I am assuming you said you bought one. I'm assuming you bought the base game version. And I will say that from my experience, uh, well, A, I've never actually played it at two players. Um, I've played it at three players a couple times, four players many times, and five players many times. Um, this, in my opinion, is one of the better Euro games that plays five players. Um, I've heard some people say, oh, a five-player game of Concordia takes like three hours, but I have played many, many five-player games of Concordia that were less than 90 minutes. And maybe that's just the group of people I play with, but the reason I love that game so much is because um, first of all, I like the hand building action style. Like any game that uses that, I like in general, like Aquatica, for instance, where you have a hand of cards on your turn, you just play a card. Like that's it. You just play a card and do what the card says. Then the card is on the table and you don't get it again until you play a card that lets you pull all of your cards back. So from a, um, a, a cycle perspective, that's really simple. And then the added fact that you are manipulating your end game scoring condition based off of every card that you buy to put into your system I just find really cool. I, I just really enjoy how breezy the game can be, at least, again, with the people that I play with. Uh, we played a five-player game uh, about two months ago on Tabletop Simulator, and it was, again, it was under two hours for that five-player game, which is saying a lot, considering we also had Tabletop Simulator uh, in the mix. Um, I will say that one of the reasons I like Concordia so much is because uh, Concordia Venus, the expansion, is super cool with uh, playing with um, teams versus teams. But even just the base game, I think... There's just something so elegant about it. The rulebook is so small for a game that can take, you know, 90 minutes or so. There's a lot of thinky decisions while it's so easy to teach because every card just tells you in English what they do. So that also means that the barrier to entry to the game is quite low. And yeah, I guess that's the medium reason why I like it. Um, it's not going to be for everybody. I fully admit that. But the fact that you've only played it at two and three is probably a factor. Uh, the more people out there means the more uh, uh, overlap you will have. And I do want to say, uh, I don't know what kind of Concordia you have, but um, I did some research when I did the Concordia Venus playthrough to figure out what map to play. And if you go to uh, Board Game Geek, I think the main Concordia or some of the other breakouts, people have done some serious uh, uh, thought work trying to figure out what maps are best for different player counts. And in fact, there are these PDFs. I downloaded one that breaks out every single map that you can get with promos and expansions and then tells you just how loose or tight that map will be for every single player count. So if you're looking for a looser game where you're not really on top of each other as much, we'll go with this map with this player count. Uh, so for instance, the uh, playthrough that I did, I intentionally went with a map that was a little bit tighter because I wanted the players to be overlapping on top of each other a lot. So um, maybe keep that in mind uh, if you're able to play this again. But um, uh, certainly I think uh, many people have complained about the two-player game to the point where there have been maps made specifically so that they are better at two and three players. So uh, yeah, I think that is probably all I should say about that. I've talked about Concordia for a while. Uh, next up, Jinrei asks, in the last video, you mentioned you and your wife like playing uh, escape room type games together like Exit. Do you also do real life escape rooms? And do you have a favorite? Yeah, 
Yeah, we've done a bunch. Um, uh, Jessica actually has done probably twice as many as I have. I've probably done 10 or so, and she's probably done 20. Uh, we really like uh, escape rooms in real life. They are they're super fun. I like the physical uh, nature of it. Uh, I will admit that I am not the strongest puzzler from a logic perspective. So in escape rooms, usually I am the uh, scout, essentially. Like, we'll go in there, and I will just turn everything over. I'll look under every single thing. I'll look, um, I'll, I'll try to pull everything off the wall and, you know, see if it comes or not. And then every time I find a clue, I put it on a table in front of Jessica and maybe one or two other friends who are much better at, um, well, she's good at finding things, but who's much more interested in the logic puzzles. And then they crunch through those while I'm trying to work on new things. Then the door opens and then I run into the new room and I, you know, pick every single thing up again. Um, so I, I think I like about escape rooms is the fact that there is kind of something for everybody. If you're not great at the logic puzzles, then that's fine. You just try to find stuff, you know, try to make all that stuff work. Um, I do the puzzles as well, usually the ones that seem a little bit more straightforward. Uh, so yeah, I I've loved them. Um, I have played one in San Francisco, Jessica's played like 10 in San Francisco. Uh, and then collectively together, we've played probably, I don't know, eight or nine in San Diego. Uh, there is a place in San Diego called House of Hints that is um, essentially the only place we've gone. We've gone one other place, but we've mostly gone there like six or seven times. And I like that place a lot. Um, Jessica's a little bit less of a uh, fan because Jessica does not like uh, hints whenever she's doing puzzles, like logic puzzles. She, she just wants to figure it out herself and she probably will because she's freaking smart. Um, but I don't mind hints when I get stuck. And this place is called House of Hints. So it's very much built around as soon as they see people getting stuck, they start offering very subtle hints without you asking. And they start very subtle. So, that, you know, at, so that it doesn't really break anything. I remember the very first escape room I ever did. Um, we were going and we were having a problem. Uh, we were, you know, we were kind of stalled out. It was like 40 minutes in and then the hint popped up on the screen and it said, John knows something. <laughs> and so suddenly my three friends looked at me and they're just like, what do you know? And I was like, I don't know what I know, <laughs> but they were watching me. And then I was thinking about it and I realized yeah, there was something I picked up and looked at and it was like, oh, there's a blue thing underneath here and I put it back and I totally forgot. So I went back, I was like, oh, there's the thing, hey. And so that hint really saved us. And and I felt like that was a good hint because it didn't say, hey, look under the bottle on the shelf. It said, John knows something. So I, I recommend them. I think they do a really good job with the hints and the puzzles, the escape rooms that we've done there have been a lot of fun. So uh, yeah. All right. The Dice Matrix says, what are your top three game mechanics? Um, well, I love incentivization. Uh, that's usually the first thing I always mention. Uh, the idea of that is um, an action, a thing, a card gets incentivized until people take it. Um, so, you know, like Small World, like people keep jumping over a specific card and you put a coin every single time and then eventually there's enough coins that somebody takes it for that thing. I love that because it's a self-balancing mechanism in the middle of a game. Um, I also really like hand building, like I said with Concordia. I like Euro games in particular that are just play a card Euros. They might be a lot of other stuff going on, but the main thing that you're doing on your turn is you're just playing a card. There's no bonus actions. There's no sub actions. You just play a card, do what the card says and move on. And there are uh, certainly many of those games. Thinking about other things, um, I just like engine building in general. I really like building something. There are many other uh, mechanics I like. Those might not actually be my top three, but I'm trying to just shoot from the hip here. But, um, you know, building up a thing that feeds into itself and does more and more stuff can be very satisfying in games. Uh, all right here. Jinrei says, also greetings from Belgium, and hopefully you are feeling a bit better since you told us about your, th that I'm in a slump. Um, yeah, I am. Um, things are feeling a little bit better uh, than it was a week ago when I, I recorded that video. And part of that's because I have been making some decisions, and I'm close to making some other decisions that are... Uh, 
allowing me to think about things a little bit differently. And I don't really want to announce anything right here. Um, I will be doing that uh, near the end of July in an update vlog for August. But um, I am feeling hopeful about some of the, the options and changes that I am mulling over and some of the ideas I have for the short, medium, and long run of my life. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Dr. Hernanausik <laughs> says, I recently began a podcast and I'm looking into producing content. Two questions that I have uh, that I would love your feedback on. One, how do you balance family, friends, and hobbies? And two, any things that you would have done differently? Um, answering question number one, um, relatively early on with John Gets Games, I decided that I was not going to, especially when it was just a hobby, I decided um, that I was not going to let it impact the like regular times I have with my wife, Jessica. I just didn't want to be, you know, working during the day or something like that and then working at night and then never really doing anything or like working over the weekends. So from a very early uh, point, I decided I wasn't going to work on John Gets Games over the weekends. Um, again, this is back long before I had sponsorships and clients and all that. Um, and I decided I wasn't going to work at night. Now that worked for me because as I mentioned before, I had a, we a weird event job. So I oftentimes worked at night, but not during the day. And I oftentimes had entire days off in the middle of the day. So I would just do John Gets Games videos while Jessica was at work. Um, but that's realistically how I did it. I just tried to work when the people I wanted to spend time with were also working. Um, and that made sense for me. But, you know, if you're trying to make content with a job that exactly matches up the timing with your uh, your family, then that can certainly be difficult. And in that case, maybe you just dictate certain days of the week that are just always off limits so that you can plan around that. I think that's a big thing. Having something that you can plan around is, is an important thing. And uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I decided I was just never working on Sundays. Even my old job would make me work on weekends, just never working on Sundays. And then I can plan around that. We know that I am free to do stuff on Sundays. And so that definitely helps. Um, you said, uh, you also asked any things that you would have done differently? Um, probably, but it's really hard to say. Um, I have obviously been tweaking things a lot as time has gone on. You know, I started making reviews and I don't make reviews anymore. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I did some good decisions uh, the whole way through. I guess I don't think I did an amazing job necessarily, but, um, you know, I, I started off just keeping it a hobby. I just did it in my free time. I did it when I was trying to have, um, do something interesting. I tried to advertise myself as much as I could. I guess I will say I advertised too hard on Reddit at first and I got shadow banned back in like 2014. <laughs> uh, that's has since been rectified, but I, I, I started uh, advertising myself a lot less after that. Um, I don't know. I think less of a things I would do differently and more of just general advice, I would say, give it a shot. It can be super satisfying. It can be a lot of fun, but um, check in with yourself and make sure you are still enjoying yourself and still liking the stuff that you were doing. Obviously, I tried to do that a lot. I talked about potentially doing changes in the last vlog and I will be making some changes because I have been checking in with myself, even though I've been doing this for six years and it's my full-time job at the moment. It's still important to be like, hold on a second. Let's get a breath of fresh air and be like, is this actually what I want to do? And is this actually how I want to do it? Uh, definitely don't get stuck in your ways. I guess that's the, the main piece of advice. Just because you've done, some, done something one way does not mean you always have to continue doing it that way. Um, don't be chained to the previous decisions you make. You should definitely iterate until you find something that you like. Or maybe you'll iterate to the point where you don't want to make it anymore. And that's totally fine as well. Next up, John, at, John Wheeler asks, recently saw your playthrough of Underwater Cities. What is your opinion on it? What is your optimal player count in your opinion? Um, the answer to this is that I love Underwater Cities. It's one of my favorite games. The optimal player count is three players. 
although two players is also great. Uh, do not play it at four players unless you are okay with playing a four to four and a half hour long game. Um, I really like it though. I, I, there's something about the engine building aspect to it, the streamlined worker placement that's also very competitive, and that awesome system where the color of your worker placement spot matching with a card you play can match up to get extra cards gives it a great combo we feel. So I really like it. I actually bought the expansion and I have not played it yet because COVID, um, but I am actually looking forward to it because it's one of my favorite games and I have a hard time seeing myself get rid of it. Uh, Ross with a super chat. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Uh, Ross says, I am assuming you've seen the recent news about Pandemic Legacy Zero. Um, you looking forward to this game? Would you do a tutorial playthrough? Question mark. Uh, yes, I have seen the uh, tweets and images about Pandemic Legacy Zero. It looks like it's a uh, um, prequel, I guess, to Pandemic Legacy 1. Um, it looks like it might even have like a noir type art theme to it? I'm not really sure. Um, the answer is yay. Yes, I am very uh, excited about it. I love Pandemic Legacy 1, uh, Season 1 and Season 2. They're both wonderful times, and I expect that I will be playing Season 0, I guess, uh, as well. I was expecting it to be Season 3, just like most other people, so I am very curious to see what this is even going to be about, considering the world seemed like a pretty regular place at the start of Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm actively very intrigued. Um, I don't think I'm going to do a tutorial playthrough of that game, though. That's going to be just for funsies with me and my friends because, you know, season one and two were a couple of my best board gaming experiences ever, and, and I want to experience it in that uh, sort of situation again as well. Uh, Alan says... Uh, you mentioned on your new game's radar that mechanics attract you more than themes, and I'm the same, but are there any themes that turn you off of a game? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, just, I mean, I guess war themes in general, I'm just, because oftentimes war themes go along with um, troops on a map, and I'm just not a fan of that. If a game is not troops on a map, but it has a war theme, then that's kind of okay, I guess. Um, I guess the biggest theme that will turn me off it's less of a theme and more of a representation and artistic style thing. Um, if a game is portraying people in ways that I feel are not good, you know, like, uh, you know, women with, you know, chainmail bikinis and that kind of stuff, I'm just not going to play that game. Even if it's amazing, I'm not going to play that game. Uh, people have asked me about Conan before, and I've heard really great things about its uh, time uh, action system as you're doing all this stuff. But there's like literally a naked woman on the front cover of the rule book. I, I, I'm not going to play that game. That's just, that's, and it's not even like, it's just that kind of stuff definitely turns me off. Um, and uh, uh, I guess that's, that's kind of the, the biggest thing that I can think of uh, as far as other themes. If it's boring trading in Mediterranean, that's not a turnoff, but it doesn't necessarily make me super interested. Um, and if a theme is, you know, strange, then that will actually help things overall. Um, so yeah, I guess I don't have that many uh, uh, just straight up uh, deal killers when it comes to themes, but I do have that one. Uh, Blake asks, are you planning to do a playthrough of Through the Ages? Not at the moment. Um, that one might win some votes at some point, perhaps it's possible, but, um, I don't really have time to do non-sponsored videos nowadays. This is my full-time job and I am fully scheduled out with, um, sponsored videos with, uh, publishers as well as, uh, Patreon supported, uh, or sponsored videos. So, um, maybe it could poke up through there at some point, but I'm not Super sure if that's going to happen. It is a great game, but that would be a big project for sure. Uh, Mihir says, what makes a good semi-cooperative game for you? Um, okay, I have a cheeky answer for this. Uh, my answer is partnerships. <laughs> uh, when it comes to semi-cooperative games where it's just you 
versus everybody else, but you can also win along with other people. I just generally don't find those to actually work out that well or be that fun for me. But I consider partnership games to be semi-cooperative because you are cooperating with one person and you have that cooperative nature and you maybe can communicate or maybe you can't depending on the game, but then you're also competing with the other teams. So you get kind of the best of both worlds in that respect without having it be a game that is cooperative and then is competitive and then is cooperative. So that's my kind of cheating answer for you. <laughs> All right, let's see here. Uh, Rachel Lershu says, first, I know my nickname is hard, just the first three letters Rish will do. Okay, Rish, I'll do that. Rec, or maybe I'll say Rec. Rec, there we go. And question, how have your taste in games changed over the years? Um, it's changed towards Euro games for the most part. Um, when I first started playing games, I liked Euro games well enough, but I played a lot more interactive games, a lot more games that had like troops on a map. Uh, for instance, Cyclades was one of my favorite games ever at one point, but these days I don't really have much interest in that game. Uh, now that game did have a fascinating uh, action selection auction system along with the troops on a map, but uh, one uh, easy way to sum this up, I guess, is that earlier on, like 10 years ago, uh, if a game had victory points, it was a bit of a turnoff for me. I wanted games to have winning conditions um, or, you know, like get all of a thing out or, you know, even if you um, give points to a thing, I just wanted like objectives instead of just getting points for this and points for that and then see who has the most points. As time goes on, I have shifted towards that and I now actually really like games that give you points for doing all sorts of things. So that's probably the biggest shift overall that's happened for me. Uh, Steven says, I also recently watched your old review of Zolkin. That's a deep cut. I think that was my third video ever. You ended the review with three negatives. Have you reevaluated that game or any game from your first impressions that where your first impressions was a negative? Um, for Zolkin, I don't remember specifically all of the negatives, but um, I did end up getting rid of that game probably about a year after I made that review. And I'm honestly not sure if I played it again after that review. Um, so I think I do still stick with those negatives. Um, I, I do remember the big negative for me was that you could just go into the game, like make your initial strategy and make your initial decisions based off a strategy. And if you collide with an opponent, then you are going to bring each other down. And somebody who takes a different strategy that does not collide with anybody just has a way easier time. Now, I've been told by people who are really experienced with Zulkin that I'm wrong and that that is not the case. And that's fine. But I played it many times and that seemed to be the case over and over again. Um, have any games gone from negative to positive for me? It's possible. Uh, I've apparently played thousands of games at this point over the last decade, so it's a hard to come up with any specific examples. Sorry, I can't really answer that second question. Uh, Mike Bloom, thank you again for another super chat. Uh, Mike asks, do you think more publishers will use Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia to teach you their games for their playthroughs instead of just sending you the rules and emailing questions? Um, it's definitely happening more. I'm, I'm going to be doing a video next month for a game called Uprising, and the publisher actively was like, I want to teach you this game on Tabletop Simulator. So I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. We're going to wait until we're closer to me filming the video. Um, I do appreciate it. It's kind of nice in that way. Um, at the same time, there's also something that I quite like about just sitting down to the table, putting on some headphones with some awesome music, and just slowly working my way through a rule book for one to two hours. Um, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that part of the experience. Uh, I guess technically I got the best of both worlds with Tekenu. Um, it was taught to me on TTS three weeks ago, so I don't remember all of it. So yesterday I got to go through the whole rule book, refreshing myself on everything. Um, I certainly don't mind it. It is nice being taught a game by the people who are making it. And um, hypothetically, in that moment, I can ask the questions that come up and it uh, streamlines the whole process. So maybe it does seem like more and more people are just using TTS in general as a marketing tool because um, of the pandemic. Uh, 
Alan Alley says, I think you mentioned before that you wanted to try more games from the key series after playing Keeper. How did that go? Do you have a top three key games? Uh, so Alan is referring to the key series, which is, um, uh, oh man, I'm, I'm bad with names right now. Anyway, it's a series of games all published by the same publisher and almost all of them are by the same designer um, who I do know, but my brain is not letting me get that information right now. Um, yes, I've played several more. I've played Keeper, I've played Key Flow, I've played Key Flower, and I've played Key Market. And I think that's all of them. I own Key Harvest and I've still not gotten around to playing it. Um, the short answer is uh, Key Flow is my current favorite. I love that game. Keeper is still amazing. Key Flower was okay, but it was pretty clunky and long for me. And it was very punishing. Maybe not clunky, but it was very punishing. Had a lot of auctions that I didn't love. So wasn't crazy about Key Flower. And Key Market was a pretty big fail. I talked about it in my impressions vlog. That was a game not designed by the rest, of, the same designers, the rest of the games. And that one just did not work. And I played it a couple times. Uh, so if you're curious about that, uh, search for Jungus Games Key Market, and you should be able to find that impressions vlog uh, where I go into a lot more detail because I've kind of forgotten some of the issues that I had with it. Uh, I guess, yeah, I just did a top three game, three key, uh, key flow, uh, keeper, and then um, I guess key flower. Uh, but I, there's a lot more that I haven't played and uh, maybe I'll like Key Harvest. I, I own it. I really should play that game, but it's kind of hard to play games right now. Uh, Sam Farley asks... Uh, what's the easiest game you've ever taught? My wife and I just played Point Salad and it was so quick, it kind of surprised us. Uh, Point Salad is a pretty good answer to that question. That is a incredibly simple game to play. Um, I would argue that number nine is probably a little bit easier to teach. Um, I actually taught that game to an entire bar full of people in Essen three years ago. Uh, there's probably like 40 or 50 people in there. And um, we played, every single person played it. We got uh, donated copies of uh, number nine from uh, the publisher to do that. And I just yelled the rules out to the entire pub and it was fun, it worked. So if I could scream the rules out over the course of just a couple minutes, that probably makes it the uh, best answer to that. But yeah, Point Salad is also crazy easy to play uh, and teach. I've only played it the one time, but I liked it. I, I, I still have my copy. I hope to play it more in the future. Uh, C. Chung asks, do you feel, how do you feel about hidden movement games? Which ones have you played? Um, I've played a few. I've played Letters to Whitechapel. I have played Fury of Dracula. I think just the third edition. I don't remember exactly. I played one of the editions of Fury of Dracula many times. It's not the newest edition. Um, I've probably played some more. Uh, the short answer, since I'm having a hard time coming up with examples, is that I'm not crazy about it, but I don't, I'm not against it. Like, I think it's a neat idea overall. I like the deduction aspect to it in a lot of ways, but it can also have its problems. Uh, Letters to Whitechapel um, is, I've enjoyed playing Letters to Whitechapel, but I've also seen situations where it takes forever because the people trying to find uh, Jack the Ripper just talk endlessly and argue for like 15 minutes before taking an action because there's so many things to calculate. So I almost feel like it's better with less people. Actually, this makes me realize there is one, oh, there's the two-player only Jack the Ripper style game that I have played. I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, Mr. Jack. Yes, Mr. Jack. Uh, Jessica just helped me out with that one. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Jack is actually probably my favorite now that I think about it. It's two-player only, so one person is hidden and the other person is trying to find that person, so you do not have the analysis paralysis of the arguments, and it's a pretty simple game to play, and it plays in about half an hour, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, I'm not against playing more of them, but um, again, I'm not, I don't gravitate towards them, but I did like Mr. Jack quite a bit. All right, here we go. Uh, Koiti asks, hello, John, which one would you recommend for a four-player 
session, uh, Coimbra or Pulsar 2849. That is super easy. Uh, definitely Pulsar. Uh, Coimbra was long and crazy AP inducing at three players. I've never actually played it at four players, but the idea of adding that extra fourth player, I feel like that game would drag a lot more. Whereas I have actually played Pulsar 2849 at four players at least once, and it was fine. I don't remember thinking there was too much downtime with Pulsar 2849, but I do remember playing a three-player game with Coimbra and thinking, I am never going to play this at four players because of just uh, the amount of potential AP and downtime that uh, happens. I think part of that might be because in Pulsar, you are drafting dice that just have pips on them. They don't have a color. So the pips are going to dictate what you do. But in Coimbra, it's the pips and the color. So that's an extra layer to crunch through. So yeah, with that player count, I would definitely go with Pulsar. It, Pulsar is a it's a fine game. It wasn't my favorite. I did end up getting rid of my copy, but I did enjoy all of my plays of it. And I played it several times. Andrea says, any other questions, you're, any other games you're thinking about saving for your own enjoyment with friends? Uh, and re regarding like Pandemic Legacy Season 0 to, instead of uh, covering it on the channel with a playthrough. Um, I think the short answer to that is yes, but legacy games. Because I think that legacy-style games just don't really work for my format overall. And also, I often really enjoy those experiences. And if the experience itself has spoilers, I guess maybe not even legacy, just experiences with spoilers are ones that I think I kind of want to save. Um, for instance, Role Player Adventure is a game I did a playthrough for uh, just last month. And uh, honestly, I really liked it. I, mean, I didn't put my opinion in the video. I was paid to make that video. But um, when I was filming it, I was like, this is really cool. It's more of like an adventure than really a board game. There's no win or loss condition. And I played through, um, I, I essentially spoiled myself on the entirety of the first scenario. And this is a game that I do think I want to play, the full campaign with friends. And I'm a bit bummed that the first scenario is going to be totally spoiled. So when I make that happen, I might just be like, just a moderator for that first game because I won't want to push them or pull them in any way so that people are still surprised. And I'm certainly glad that I did not spoil myself for the second and third scenarios that were in the prototype. So yeah, I guess just games with spoilers are ones that I, I do want to try and save. Uh, so the last question uh, with Marcelo Duarte is, don't know if you already talked about your happiness, but do you want to expand on your emotions? Well, that is quite the question to end on. Um, I don't want to announce anything right here, like like I said earlier, but I can say that the introspection that I've been doing based off of the check-in where I realized that I'm not happy and things are things need to change, the introspection that I've been doing has been really helping things out. Um, the ideas that I've been having, the discussions I've been having with um, close friends and family about how to make my life and my career and all that stuff better have been very heartwarming and they have me feeling very positive about the future. Um, again, without spoilers, I can say that um, it's not all win-win. Uh, there will be people disappointed, I think, with some of the changes that I'm planning on doing, but um, I'm going to go into all the specifics of those in the next vlog. But I can say that um, the upside of that is I am actively excited at the opportunities and the things that will potentially that I'll potentially have with the changes that I'm making. So um, long story short, yes, I am actually in a way better place than I was even a week ago, and I hope that will continue, and you will find out all the reasons why in just a couple of weeks, and I'll try to go into some, some real depth about uh, the various stuff that's really been rattling around my brain, because I know I was very vague in the last vlog, and I know I'm being very vague now, so I will try to fix all that vagueness 
in a couple weeks with the next update blog. So yes, that is going to bring this to a close. Thank you so much for everybody coming over. Uh, it looks like there's a whole bunch of people saying thank you. Yes, thank you, uh, John, Ross, Sean, everyone else who uh, who joined in. Uh, everyone asked questions and who didn't. Um, I really like doing these. So uh, I'm not sure exactly when the next one will be out, uh, but it will be near the beginning of August. I might shift the time again. This was 11 a.m. and the next one, maybe I'll do 1 p.m. Maybe I'll just do 11, 1, 3 with alternating months just to catch different people uh, going forward. But uh, either way, that is going to bring this to a close. Thank you so much for joining in.